Today's sermon is going to be uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 9. If you haven't already turned your Bibles to that passage, please uh, do so. <clears throat> That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. There's a story told of a prosperous young investment banker... I can wait. Okay. As I was mentioning, there's a story told of a young investment banker um, who was driving a new BMW sedan. And he was driving on a mountain road during a very bad snowstorm. As he veered around uh, one very sharp turn, he lost control and began sliding off the road towards a steep cliff. At the very last moment, he unlocked his seatbelt, unbuckled his seatbelt, flung open the door, and he leapt out from the car, which then plummeted to the bottom of the ravine and burst into a ball of flames. Although he had escaped with his life, the young man suffered a horrible, tragic injury. Somehow his arm got caught in the hinge of the door, and as he jumped out, it got torn off of his shoulder. Now, a passenger, uh, rather a passing trucker, saw this, and he stopped, and then he went back to see if he could provide some help. When he arrived at the scene, he found the, the young banker standing at the roadside, looking down at the BMW, burning in the ravine below. Incredibly, the banker was oblivious to his injury, and he moaned, my BMW, my new BMW. Well, the, the trucker pointed at the banker's shoulder and said, hey, buddy, you, you've got bigger problems than that, pointing at his arm. He says, we need to go find your arm, and maybe the surgeons can, you know, put it back on your arm. And the banker looked where his arm was, and he paused for a moment and groaned, Oh no, my Rolex, my brand new Rolex! Sometimes I think we can misplace our priorities in life, can't we? Sometimes desire for things can be so strong that we can forget what is important and, and react in perhaps some irrational ways, can't we? It's not that we don't know what's right, but um, we make decisions that can disregard what is truly important in life. And before you know it, we're going down the wrong path. Have you ever done that in your life? I think we all can say that we've struggled with that, haven't we? Well, the church at Corinth is an example of how we can lose sight of what is important of how when we take our eyes of where it should be, how it can take us places we never intended or ultimately wanted. But meanwhile, it's happening. We think that it's acceptable behavior. But as we shall see, oftentimes it becomes acceptable to us because we've allowed the world's values and ideals to saturate our souls, our thinking, and ultimately our ethics. 
If you would please rise now as we go to the reading of God's word this morning. First Corinthians chapter three. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to the labor. But we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When you consider our text uh, this morning, verses 1 through 5, it's abundantly clear that Paul is accusing the church at Corinth of spiritual immaturity. The apostle's concern is evidenced by the fact that there is division, there is a pursuit of worldly wisdom. The wisdom of the gospel is at stake, and whenever the wisdom of the gospel is at stake, then certainly the church becomes at stake. Having spent the previous two chapters in this uh, uh, first book of Corinthians about worldly wisdom and God's wisdom, how the eye of the unbeliever, the wisdom of the gospel to the eye of the unbeliever, the gospel is foolishness. And now he focuses uh, on chapter 3 to their foolish behavior, how their foolish behavior mimics more of worldly wisdom than it does the wisdom of God. As it relates to being spiritually mature and divided, well, the apostle believes that these aren't necessarily two mutually exclusive ideas. See, the problem is that the Corinthians think themselves as spiritual, as mature, while in fact they are divided. As we dig into this, we want to see that first, Paul, in verses 1 through 5, disabuses them of their false self-perception. He tells them that they are not spiritual, they are not mature, but they're rather fleshly. They, properly, began with milk and should now presumably be consuming meat. But as Paul says, they're not ready for it even now. He says that they're thinking like mere human beings, not those that are possessed by the Holy Spirit. Paul is not saying that they're different classes of Christians, but he wants them to stop thinking in worldly ways. Clearly, Paul does not mean to say that they don't have the Holy Spirit. They do, and that's the problem. The Corinthians have totally misapprehended the church and its ministry. 
They are boasting in their leaders as though they could belong to them in some way. Paul's intent is to correct a misguided perception of ministry on the part of the church that was making way too much of its ministers. It's like they had fallen into hero worship. The reality is that in the church today, and has been for quite some time, hero worship can be something that the church struggles with. Now let's take a step back here and and look at each of, of the elements in Paul's teaching in this passage. In verses one and two, in spiritual terms, solid food consists of advanced Christian doctrine. Paul tells his readers, when he was first with them, they were not ready for solid food, but only milk. He was only able to teach them the elementary doctrines of the gospel. But the time for that had passed. They should have been able to understand the more advanced teachings of the Christian faith as found in the scriptures. This was evident because their understanding of church leadership, their relation to the ministers of the gospel, and ecclesiology, the the doctrine of the church, was totally worldly. They were acting like the world, worldly, fleshly, unspiritual people. I don't know if you're seeing this, but this is really a biting reproof that Paul is making upon them. As a consequence, the members in Corinth were acting divisively. In doing so, their behavior betrayed the fact that they were acting as if they belonged to the world. People acting as if they did not have the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, we know that they were possessed by the Holy Spirit because Paul addresses them as brothers, not just friends, but he addresses them as fellow believers. Does this mean that the church can act or behave like the world? Absolutely. Why? Well, we can lose our focus when we take our eyes off of what we're supposed to have it on on whom we're supposed to have it on, we lose our focus and can become very much like the world. Paul is writing them to remind them of their status before God, as those sanctified for the kingdom of God, those that have been plucked from the fires of God's impending judgment, those that have been called to enter into a special, loving relationship with him by acting or behaving as worldly or fleshly, what the people of God are doing is opening themselves up to the loving discipline of the Father or the heartache that is ushered in by sin. In the midst of this chastisement, I I hope you're not missing the great irony that's present here. The Corinthian church, which which prided herself as the most amongst the churches for their spiritual gifts, are being rebuked for being, of all things, unspiritual. They're blind to this. That's part of the point here. I remember when I first began to drive, I, I was a teenager, and I had a person who was helping me to learn how to drive. And uh, there was this one time, I remember, uh, we were sitting in the car, and, um, and the person just got out of the car 
and he said, I'm going to teach you about blind spots. By the way, we were parked when he said that. And so he got out of the car and went about four or five steps outside to the right and then walked back a couple of steps. And he asked me, he said, now I want you to look through the, the right mirror and, and see if you can see me. So I looked. I said, I can see you. And then he said, okay. And he walked a couple more steps, a little bit to his left. And they said, can you see me now? I looked, and there he was. I said, I can see you. And then he walked again a couple more steps and said, can you see me? And I looked, and he was gone. Well, I said, no, I can't see you. And, and I had to turn around to actually see him. Well, he introduced me to the notion of the blind spot that we have in cars and vehicles. Every vehicle has a blind spot, and we have to be aware of that. And we have to make sure that we look to see, because otherwise what happens is that we could be in a lot of danger if there is actually a vehicle either to the right or to the left. Isn't that true of us also, blind spots? Right? I'm not talking about vehicle blind spots. I'm talking about blind spots in life. We, we all have them. And, and I think the church in Corinth has is, is got a blind spot here. It's so ironic. Whenever we see sin in other people's lives for which we tend to suffer ourselves, isn't that such a great irony as well? I think that in these contexts, the words of the Lord are so helpful. You know, when he says in Matthew that, you know, Look, you know, before you deal with the splinter, the, the, the sin in the other person's eye, that you better take a look at yourself and remove the log that's present, right? We, we tend to have a blind spot, and we see sin in other people when we don't see it in ourselves. Let me ask you, how often have you sat, perhaps even in the seats that you're sitting in right now, over the years uh, being, uh, uh, receiving sermons from a variety of different preachers, Sunday after Sunday, listening to all the different sermons that have been offered that helps us to understand ourselves and who we are in Christ. And then you, you think to yourself, wow, what a great sermon that was. And how that sermon really applies to my spouse. Or how that sermon really applies to my kids, or my parents, or, or, or my friend at work. I got to get a copy of that sermon and make sure they get it. Anyone but ourselves. Have you ever seen this dynamic working in someone else's life? I mean you, right? Have you ever seen that? We, we really do struggle with that, don't we? Sin is very funny when it comes that way. It has a way for us to see in others what we're guilty of ourselves, we have blinders on. Hmm. We all have blind spots. And it's so important for us to acknowledge that we have blind spots. To think otherwise is to open ourselves for pride to have its way with us. And you know what happens after pride gets its way with us. So Paul's chastisement is that they are not prepared to receive the mature teaching of God's wisdom. Why? Because they're still like baby Christians. Look, no one blames an infant for not being able to receive solid food. They just don't have the teeth for it, right? But when a baby grows up, 
should be able to seek out meat instead of just milk. This is the heart of Paul's criticism of the Corinthians. One, they're acting as if they're living like an unbeliever, and they're not pursuing the things of God. If Paul were here today and make that assertion to our church, how would you personally respond to that accusation? Are you living a life that's reflective of an unsaved person? Since you were saved, have you been diligently seeking out the Word of God? You know, the truth of the matter is that normally, if you seek out the Word of God, you will find yourself living out a life that is less and less worldly. You will actually be able to identify the differences between leading a godly life and an ungodly life. You'll be able to identify the differences between godly thinking and worldly thinking. In verse 4, Paul faults the Corinthians for being no different from anyone else in the city of Corinth, being like the unbeliever, fleshly. Now, when you look at your life, how can you say it is different than the average unbeliever in Laurel or whatever town it is that you live in? Brothers and sisters, perhaps this morning, the Word of God is calling you to take inventory of your priorities in life and consider the level of fleshliness, worldliness, by which you lead your life and repent. We have to think spiritually, live spiritually, take and receive the joy of being called out of the realm of darkness and being into the kingdom of God's light and joy. Now, indeed, the, the initial and main concern that caused Paul to write this letter was that there was factionalism within the church. Some were, as verse 4 tells us, I follow Apollos, and some say, I follow Paul. Paul picks this issue, the church's glamorizing of its ministers as the focal point, one, to demonstrate their worldliness, of being mere men, not spiritual men. Secondly, to bring them back to focus on whom they are to place their affections, the one and only true God. He wants them to refocus. Paul goes about making his point by using a farming analogy, by comparing himself as well as Apollos as menial laborers in a field. Paul wants to communicate that the church should not boast about her human leaders. The Corinthians were taking sides based upon the ancient idea of human wisdom and eloquence. Some were of Apollos, perhaps because he was a great orator, and some were of Paul because he was a holy man. So Paul asks, what is Apollos? What is Paul? His answer is that as Christian leaders, 
Well, they're servants. They're slaves as Christian leaders. To Gentile ears, servanthood spoke of low social status. Paul very cleverly puts those in Corinth who elevated their ministers in a position to be venerated as people of repute or, or envied positions in life as nothing but servants. Servants that were humble workers, farm workers, the type of vocation that the elite in Corinth would have despised. You see, Paul is disabusing the Corinthians' misplaced loyalties. He wishes to take their minds off of the servant and place them unto the Lord. Paul wants to end the adoration of their servants and place it on who truly deserves their adoration. Have you ever been in a church before where you've heard conversations about how great their pastor is or, or how, how wonderful a preacher he is and how this pastor is better than perhaps this pastor? Um, this is not something that is uncommon in Christendom. And, and I think that it, it's, it's, it's sad, because as we can see here, it really can take the focus, our eyes, off of the most important person, and that is Christ himself. Right? We get involved in things that we shouldn't be having discussions about. We need to be talking about Christ. We need to be talking about how wonderful he is to us. I've seen this. I've experienced it myself. So at first blush, the work of toiling may seem supremely important. And I'm not saying that it, it, it's not important, but Paul in verse 6 puts things into perspective. Paul says that I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. The most important point is made in verse 7 here. It is God who gives the increase. Without God continually causing to rain on us, the sun to shine, and causing the growth, the servant's labors would amount to what? Nothing. Don't you see? Laborers poured their efforts to bringing the gospel to you. But if it wasn't for God regenerating and using the seeds of the gospel that were planted in your soul, it would have never come to life. So then it is God who gets the honor and the glory for your salvation, not those that, that watered or planted the seed. Now to get a better handle on this, let me point out that the acts of planting and watering are verbs that indicate an event in time. It's a one-time event in time. But the giving of life and sustaining life is what God has been doing in your life all the time as you have been Christians. Now this is a significant thing to understand on many levels, but let me point out that, that someone may have worked to bring the gospel of salvation to the ears of your soul. Perhaps others encouraged you to trust or entrust yourself to God. But God is the one who gave you faith to believe. It was his gift. The implications, frankly, are freeing 
when you think about this. Many people are timid about proclaiming the gospel because they're afraid that people will reject the offer of Christ. The truth is that the preset for all of humanity is that they will reject Christ. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 tells us, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is none, not even one. It takes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit for people to accept God. So you see, the responsibility of saving people is not yours. Did you think that it was your responsibility? This is truly liberating when you think about it. When you go and tell or are afraid to tell people of Christ because you feel that you might get rejected, well, guess what? You're not being rejected. And we act that way as if we're personally rejected. And that's why we don't want to tell people about Christ. If you're going to get a rejection to the offer that you're making of Christ, well, guess what? You're not being rejected. It's Christ who's being rejected. And we should anticipate that because that's their preset. It takes the work of God to get them to the place where they won't reject Christ. And frankly, it's quite liberating, don't you think? That it's not about you. It's about God. And all that he wants from us is just to be available and to go and proclaim Christ to those whom we come in contact with. Do you find that liberating? To know that it's not about you. To know that if a person says no, that you did something wrong. Or that now you're to blame for their response throughout all of eternity. Well, they're already, everyone is already destined unless God some, does something to them in order to be saved. Do you live your life in a manner that causes you to see your life through the lens of the gospel? You see, when you do, your conversations that you have will have a different, for lack of a better word, a different flavor. They will, your conversations, that is, suddenly present opportunities to share how the gospel has been pivotal as it relates to the similar circumstances in your life and how it can also be life-changing to those with whom you're having a conversation. If you think biblically, if you live Christ-likely, then all of a sudden the way that you think will present different opportunities for you to proclaim Christ. Do not be concerned about the outcome. Do not worry that if you said what you said will lead to a salvation. That's not your responsibility. And neither do you have the power to save anyone. That is the work of God. You see, this is very important here. You are responsible for the process. 
God is responsible for the outcome. You are responsible for the process. God will give the outcome. Not only does this teaching, I think, free up an individual Christian, but it also should free up the local church, or churches, I think, frankly, across the world. All across Christendom and churchianity, we would say, she has fallen prey into a faulty theology, thinking that it's her responsibility to save people. It's not the church's responsibility to save people. It's the church's responsibility to proclaim Christ his unbelievable declaration of love. The staggering lengths he took to prove his love and his continuing protection of those souls that submit to him. That's our responsibility. God will give the increase, just like he gave the growth in your life. The Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28 tells the church to go make disciples. It doesn't tell us to go make Christians. We are to take Christians, which the Holy Spirit makes, and we are to teach them all that the Lord has taught us. Do you see? The growth of our church's community is linked to how God uses the faithful gospel proclamation of the rank-and-file believer, you and I. That's how we experience the wonderful growth of proclaiming the gospel. It's not our responsibility to make Christians. We can't make Christians. So if someone were to ask you, why are you a Christian? Or how did you become a Christian? Or how can I become a Christian? Are you able to tell them how or even why they need to become Christians? In Berlin, there's an art gallery containing a painting by a German painter, Adolf Menzel, born in 1815 and passed away in 1905. Only partially finished. It was intended to show Frederick the Great speaking with some of his generals. Menzel painted the generals and the background, and he left the king until last. He made the outline of Frederick in charcoal, but he died before he finished it. Many Christians come to the end of life without ever having put Christ first in a proper place in center stage. God is sovereign in salvation. God should be the main focus and not its leaders. Let us focus our attention upon God's word and God's wisdom, not the world's. May we, by God's grace, not be guilty of thinking and acting like mere men. Instead, make Christ center stage in our personal lives and the life of our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your word speaks truth to us, for your word helps us to grow out from being 
fleshly, to being more mature. We pray that the meat of your word would sustain us and would grow us to reflect Christ more and more in our lives. And indeed, we pray that we focus and consistently refocus, both individually and as a congregation, upon the most important thing, and that is your Son, the Lord Jesus, what he has done for us, what he continues to do for us, and what you have called us to do, and that is to proclaim him, and to proclaim him boldly, without fear, without making it about ourselves, running away, scurrying away whenever we're rejected, but rather boldly, joyfully, encouraging others, informing others of this wonderful Savior that we have. And as you bring them into your fold, that you would grant us the grace and the wisdom to teach them all the things that our Lord has taught us, so that they also may grow up into the maturity of adulthood as Christians. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.